Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 4th, 2013. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we have just two weeks left, and that's good because, you know, we still have some things to do. We have some games to play, but we did get some of our uh, some of our questions answered on Saturday. You know, was Heidelberg going to be in position to hand uh, Mountain Union its first road loss in the OAC since, you know, most of these players have been alive and its first conference loss of any kind since 2005? Um not quite. Uh, Wisconsin Whitewater and Wisconsin Platteville, who was going to come out on top. We got some answers there. Uh, we found out if anybody was going to beat Illinois Wesleyan on the road, and North Central managed to do so, and do so in a way which would certainly help it in the uh, CCIW tiebreaker. And then uh, Linfield and Willamette. Was uh, Willamette going to be able to come up with something big against its rival in the uh, Northwest Conference? And uh, we got some answers there, and a lot of other games were played on Saturday as well, and we will uh, get to as many of those as we can, whether it's the Odakiness of the Odak or the uh, continued uh, miracle finishes by Gallaudet or, you know, you name it, we'll talk about it. We also solicited your questions online via Twitter and Facebook, so we will uh, answer as many of those as we can throughout the course of this podcast as well as we have uh, wrapped up here week nine of the 2013 division three football season uh, I made the trip to Tiffin Ohio to watch Mount Union and Heidelberg to get uh, you know some eyes on Mount Union for uh, the first time really this season for me um, because we are this far into the season and you know you figure at this point, teams have a, a chance to gel. If you have a new coach, for example, maybe, you know, 95 new starters on offense, something like that. Uh, by the time you get to uh, the first week of November, you should be able to answer some questions. And for Mount Union, um, you know, what I saw was a team that uh, defensively was just as good as advertised, just as good as last year. Uh, we looked at them at halftime, for example, uh, they had held Cartel Brooks, the uh, stud running back for Heidelberg, to uh, 11 carries for one yard, and uh, it it it, uh, it looked even more dominant than that. There were, uh, I think, on uh, maybe eight or nine of those 11 carries, Cartel Brooks did not even get back to the line of scrimmage. Um, and uh, you know, offensively, they broke out uh, a new running back, uh, freshman B.J. Mitchell, who was making his second start. They broke out another running back to the punter, Ed Runke. We'll talk about that uh, coming up in a minute as well. And Kevin Burke was as uh, as good as advertised, uh, as good as he was last year. But uh, the offensive line in front of him struggled. So as I try to try to organize all of these uh, little things that. I saw on Saturday to try to kind of talk about uh, the first thing that came to mind was that uh, the Mountain Union wide receiving core, uh, which, you know, Keith, we've been accustomed to them having some some studs, obviously, in that uh, wide receiver core going back. I, I really can't think of a year when they didn't have uh, an All-American candidate. And this year, the Mountain Union receiving core is not only really, I think, devoid of maybe All-American type talent. Uh, certainly devoid of NFL talent um, and average. If I had, you know, if you had talked to me at halftime of that game, I would have said the wide receiving core was average by division three standards. And that is pretty low. Uh, by the end of the game, uh, they, uh, I, I'd, uh, my opinion of them had raised a little bit. Now that I would say they're average by Mount union standards, but still we're just accustomed to them being really, really good. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, speed and that sort of thing from the wide receiving core. And this year's group, the one that I saw on Saturday, did not have that. 
Pat, yeah, you, you mentioned that, you know, we've grown accustomed to seeing, um, you know, Pierre Garçon or Cecil Shorts III or uh, Jasper Collins type wide receiver in the in the Mount Union uh, offense for several years now. You may have to go back to the years when you know Jason Candle Candle or Randall Knapp was you know maybe their their most their best threat. You know maybe oh four. Uh, you, you know I don't know how far back really you have to go to find out. Um, there was there was a time when Mount Union teams you know some of them were, were primarily running based teams and they and they you know still threw the ball. But, uh, you know, if their best player or their best two players were running backs, they, they ran the ball a lot. And, uh, you know, right now, I, it, it, this is a little strange because I think, you know, we're 10 or nine weeks in and, and we're still getting to know this offense a little bit. It's Kevin Burke and, uh, and you know, maybe a different guy every week standing out at running back. You know, Bradley Mitchell, obviously the one who uh, who stood out on Saturday with 27 carries, 152 yards, you know, more than five and a half yards a carry. And, you know, uh, Jack Nichols, uh, Luke Meacham each had over 100 yards receiving in that game. Uh, Meacham had the, the long touchdown late in the game. So, you know, we're starting to see the playmakers grow or, or, or show their, show themselves uh, on the Mount Union offense. But, yeah, it's certainly not not a, a Mount Union that's going to uh, overwhelm a, a team just on raw talent alone. And so I think that bodes well. And if you, you pair that with uh, everything else we, we saw on Saturday, I think that bodes well for this postseason. And it's going to be pretty exciting because you've got a lot of teams who are um, really good. You know, not saying that there's no team that's established itself as elite, but rather saying that there are several teams that seem to have established themselves as elite. And as we get into this postseason, it's going to be, uh, I think, pretty exciting to watch which ones emerge. I don't, I don't think you can say, okay, these two teams are, should definitely meet in the stag bowl or these four teams should definitely meet in the final four. I think it's going to be, um, you know, pretty exciting five weeks of playoffs. Nichols had a, a, a 64 yard catch in which uh, he was brought down short of the end zone. And uh, Mitchell had to run it in from two yards out on a, a couple plays later. Uh, Meacham had a 56-yard touchdown catch, uh, which made a nice over-the-shoulder grab. Uh, there were some really there were some blown coverages though for Heidelberg. Uh, but what's interesting it was kind of a it was a, a kind of a hit or miss day for Heidelberg uh, in the secondary, and they really actually hit uh, quite a bit um, because I think. You know, in in a sense, some of those Mount Union guys, you don't have to double as much as you had to, you know, double or, or try to uh, keep an extra eye on Shorts and Garcon and those guys in the past. Um, so what happened was uh, Burke was sacked five times, and as much of that, and, and you know, and really uh, chased out of the pocket probably seven or eight additional times uh, beyond that. Uh, Burke ran the ball 22 times, and I'm not sure how many of those were design runs. He really was uh, scrambling quite a bit, quite a bit because. Uh, you know, he had, uh, he didn't have anybody open. There was a pretty good coverage on, uh, on most of the wide receiving options. And he basically had to pull the down, uh, pull the ball down and run a lot. So it's unusual to see a Mountain Union quarterback get sacked five times. And some of that is, you know, uh, still offensive line gelling, but I think a lot of it was, uh, a lot of it was coverage sacks. No, Pat, you were there and, and, you know, you got to see, uh, the game in, in person and, and, what kind of uh, you know Mountain Union team this is as compared to um, to previous teams, and I think that that to me is still the uh, the big question as as we go forward. Now you know for Mountain Union, it's sort of like uh, the season 
for them really doesn't seriously start until you get a couple weeks into the playoffs. And I know that's sort of that's presumptuous, but it, it it's been that's the way it's been the past twenty years from Mount Union. You know that they they obviously play really well during the regular season. They're always a team that that plays in December, and we've seen teams previously for them where the the playmakers have emerged in the postseason or or as you get this deep into the season, whether it's week nine or week ten. So you know, I don't know if we if we still uh, know quite what the what the limit is for them or their what their capabilities are and i think that's kind of that's kind of exciting at least from from my standpoint uh, would you say that that um you know defensively they they are as good as um some of the really great defensive teams the mountain unions had the past few years i think so i i think they really uh i think they really are um you know like i said they they held brooks more than in check, whatever the next, you know, two levels up from in check. That was what uh, Brooks did in the first half. And he, he got some yards in the second half, uh, wore them down a little bit. Um, you know, frankly, if, uh, if Michael Meese, the quarterback hadn't, uh, you know, had some scrambling ability in the first half, uh, I think Heidelberg would have been in some serious trouble because they were having a, a little bit of a hard time, uh, you know, putting, uh, putting drives together and stringing first downs together. Uh, they got a couple of big plays in order to, uh, um, in order to set up, for example, their first touchdown was, uh, set up by a 64 yard screen pass to Dante die. Um, you know, that, uh, was the big play there. Um, you know, they had, uh, uh, you know, die also dropped what would have been a clear touchdown, uh, out at, uh, near midfield at the, uh, early in the second quarter Had a couple big catches by, uh, their tight end, Derek hug, but, you know, they held the running game in check and, uh, Heidelberg, you know, completed some big passes again. They made some big plays, just like uh, Mount Union makes made some big plays offensively. One of the other things I thought really impressive about Mount Union on Saturday too, Keith, was uh, they were willing to take chances. Uh, you know, you're um, so Heidelberg. Uh, a couple of times they have fourth down and short. One of them's uh, just short of midfield. One of them's at their own forty yard line. Uh, and they punt the ball away. And for, uh, Mount Union, Mount Union in the second quarter, uh, Luke Meekjum drops a third down pass, and they are stuck with the uh, fourth down at their own 19 yard line. Uh, they bring Ed Rudkey on to punt, and Runkey with a designed fake runs 50 yards up the right sideline and sets up a uh, Meekjum for a 26 yard touchdown pass. I mean, that's a that's a ballsy call. That's a, a uh, that's a fourth down deep in your own territory, and you're gonna you're asking the punter to run the ball. And by the way, Ed Runkey's about one of the fastest punters I've ever seen. So he had some trouble punting on Saturday, and we uh, were chatting about whether that's the fact that it's hard to recruit a punter to Mount Union because what does the punter at Mount Union get to do? Or you know, is a guy who doesn't get a lot of uh, in-game punting experience if it was something based off that? But phew, man, the kid could run, and that was a that was a huge. Uh, spark for Mountain Union in the second quarter. Yeah, and maybe I wonder too if if that's going to be another storyline as we go down here for for the next you know seven weeks for Mountain Union as we as as the those of us who don't get to watch them every single week you know we we see them play we dip in on time from from time to time you know you get to fly to Ohio or we watch them on Sports Time Ohio but the the storyline of uh, Vince Karras showing his personality as a head coach, doing some of the things that maybe his dad wouldn't have done. Or, um, you know, he's, he's obviously a younger guy and, and someone who's 
who's who's come up and had a lot of success as a, as a uh, coordinator. But I think even even when a uh, whenever a new coach takes over, you know, he, he puts a little bit of his own stamp on things, and maybe that was was uh, was one case of that on Saturday with with the play that you mentioned. I just was was impressed um, on Saturday again with um, you know Heidelberg staying close, and I know that sounds silly because there was a point in the game when it was thirty to thirteen, but they you know cut that you know pretty quickly in the second half. And I know there was the fluky play in there, but they they cut it to um, thirty twenty seven, and then you know it, it was it was a uh, back and forth game from there. Yeah, and and that you know it's it's so hard to yeah you know, I think when you go back and do and do your ballot you look at some of these teams that lost and the and the losses were pretty uh, convincing even for the top twenty five teams and and you know there's the the school of logic where well you know you're supposed to lose to a team that's ranked higher than you so does that jungle juggle your ballot all that much but there's a difference between losing forty six seventeen as we'll talk about when we get to North Central and in Illinois Wesleyan. And uh, lose, you know, 40, 44, 34, where Heidelberg had a chance at a, at a point in the second half. Yeah. So they were down 30 to 13 at the half and uh, and they um, and they had uh, uh, they had uh, they were not getting the ball to come out in the second half either. So Mount Union was starting with the ball. Uh, the, the big the the thing that really makes this uh, this second half possible for them was that, uh, you know, that Heidelberg got the defensive stop. On the uh, on the first uh, on the first drive of the second half, I mean, Mountain Union picked up a couple of first downs, but ended up having to punt it away. And so here's the interesting thing: you 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 uh, reference the fluky play, and I'll talk about that in a second. But really, both of the uh, of the third quarter touchdowns that helped Heidelberg get into get back into the game uh, were helped along a little bit. Uh, one of them was a a big tackle for loss by Matt Fetchko, which turned into a an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. He uh, uh, tangled up a little bit uh, too much, I guess. Uh, you know that that's a that's a play that I or a call that I thought was pretty good, but a lot of other people uh, a lot of other people questioned whether that call was uh, was accurate or not. And then uh, so that gave Heidelberg a first down, and uh, you know they hit Die with a thirty five yard touchdown to cut it to ten. Uh, and then yeah, the interesting fumble call. That's how I have it uh, marked down in my notes. Uh, the the play that either none none of the seven officials called or nobody had the uh, the guts to overrule the the initial call that was made on the field that uh, for some reason um, so Kevin Burke is is uh, trips over himself and is going to the ground and he shovels the ball forward uh, as a shovel pass to get rid of the football uh, to to try to throw an incomplete pass and I guess basically nobody on the officiating crew decided that they really wanted to call it that uh, the. The uh, the initial call came out of fumble. Nobody overruled that, so Heidelberg gets the ball back, and uh, and that's actually the drive in which uh, Cartel Brooks kind of comes alive a little bit. He has uh, an 11 yard touchdown run on that drive and had a, another uh, nine yard carry that cut the lead to 30 to 27. Um, you know, it was uh, at the at the point at which Heidelberg faked the field goal on the first play of the fourth quarter, down by 10. And failed. It was really the end of the game, frankly. Even though there was, you know, some more points to be scored, and and Heidelberg had a uh, put a touchdown on the board in the fourth quarter to cut it to ten, and was driving to try to make it a one possession score and set up an onside kick. That was really the uh, that was really the dagger, and it was over by the uh, second snap of the of the fourth quarter. 
You ready to uh, move on to some of these other big games? I mean, I, we could talk about uh, number one versus number nine for for a long time. You but, mean uh, other than the six, other... other than the fifteen minutes we've already talked about it, <laughs> right? I mean, but but we got some other big ones we got to get to too. So yeah, so um, I watched yeah. a little bit of the Whitewater Platteville game um, on my DVR. So thank you, Fox Sports North, and whoever at the um, whoever at the conference office at the Y. I put that uh, package of three games together here down the stretch in the regular season. The big takeaway I got from that was you know I I just seen Whitewater play. Uh, a couple weeks earlier, and they looked pretty similar. Uh, Jordan Ratliff had another uh, another good game. Um, the interesting thing for uh, two things: one for Platteville, uh, Lee Vlasic, the uh, the running back for the Pioneers, was out, did not play. I- I'm sure that affected them a little bit. They were very heavily through the air, and, and and even though it's hard to run on white water to begin with, it's even harder to run on white water with your uh, with your second string guy. Uh, and then the other thing is that Jake Kumaro, the wide receiver who's been getting uh, all the headlines and made some big catches for them over the course of the season, got hurt in the first quarter, did not return. You know, whether he didn't return because they didn't need him because uh, Whitewater, uh, after going down 9 nothing, went up 22-9 by the end of the half, uh, I guess kind of remains to be seen, remains to be seen next week. Without him, they still look pretty good, actually. Joe Wirth is a a guy who... Uh, hadn't gotten a lot of notice for them so far this year, but he became the uh, you know the Matt Barron's number one target the rest of the way and uh, caught three touchdown passes and he looked pretty good actually uh, from you know like I said I've only seen the first half of that game so far so I know he has a, another touchdown I haven't seen yet um, so I I still think about the same of Whitewater as I did before and I think Platteville uh, if they don't have the running game next week, if they don't have their number one running back against Oshkosh, I think they're going to be in a world of trouble. Yeah, I agree with you there, Pat. And I think, you know, from that game on Saturday between Whitewater and Platteville, I think the thing that stands out is the thing that's been standing out increasingly week to week for Whitewater. It's that defense. You know, you mentioned the 9 nothing lead, but it, it's a... Uh, it's a it pick was, six, yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was boosted by uh, by a 70-yard interception return. Uh, that's how Platteville got on the board first. And uh, so it wasn't like, you know, Platteville drove the field right off the opening kickoff on Whitewater. They, they got on the board with a, a defensive touchdown, kick, did kick a field goal. And then uh, and then after that, it was all Whitewater until, you know, Platteville scored once on a long drive uh, in the in the uh, third quarter. And that, at that point, the game actually made it 22-16. So I know it was a good game at that point, and Whitewater was able to put it away. But I still think it's going to be tough for anybody. Now we've seen this uh, the past two weeks for Whitewater um, against Oshkosh and Platteville, the two best, the other you know two best teams in in the uh, in the WIAC, and they'll be facing off uh, coming up soon here for you know probably a Pool C bid. Uh, it's going to be tough for anybody to, to score on them. You know, you're going to have to beat them. If if you get this team in the playoffs, you're going to have to, uh, you know, beat them with 17 or 21 if you're lucky. I just don't – I don't see teams putting together really good offensive days against them. Uh, Platteville has been an explosive uh, offensive team all year. Uh, you know, they know they could spread the field on teams. I know, you, you know, you mentioned they they had injuries. But, um, you know, four interceptions of, of John is probably his worst uh, outing of the season, 22 of 46. Uh, not a great passing day for him, and uh, 271 yards total for for Platteville. I think that's the you know that's the kind of yardage total you're looking at. You know, for any playoff team, 
uh, at least in the first few rounds, uh, you know, if they get Whitewater. And yeah, I guess I'm I'm putting Whitewater in, in the postseason now that they've uh, won these two games. <laughs> uh, they uh, they do need to uh, finish out, but they are at five and zero in the conference, eight and zero overall. Uh, they have to. I guess if I read this correctly, since they've beaten both Oshkosh and Platteville, they just have to win one of the final two games in order to uh, clinch the conference championship. And they finish up down the stretch at Stevens Point, and then they host Windless River Falls in the final week. Um, even if you think uh, Stevens Point is a bit of a challenge, I would uh, I would agree with you. But I would say that Whitewater is going to be super extra motivated to win this game because it was really uh, Stevens Point that knocked them out of having any chance of going to the playoffs uh, out of that dismal season last year, uh, a game in which Stevens Point just somehow came up and and, and beat Whitewater uh, late in the season last year. So, um, you know, we haven't had anybody clinch. I think we're going to have a lot of teams clinch on Saturday upcoming. Um, and we have uh, another one of them is uh, Linfield's in a position to clinch after they uh, beat Willamette on Saturday. Um, Linfield just has to be in a position where they don't lose either of their final two games. And, you know, similar to the, uh, uh, situation we just described with Whitewater, uh, Linfield hosts Puget Sound and Puget Sound, uh, of course is uh, one in six and zero and four in the conference. So they should be in pretty good position there. Um, so they have a chance to clinch on Saturday because they beat Willamette and they beat Willamette soundly and, I don't know what else to say about that except for the fact that, uh, again, and I know we talked about this uh, in a previous week, the uh, the combination of passing performance and rushing performance by uh, the quarterback, Josh Yoder, was pretty impressive for the Wildcats. Yeah, I think everything the Wildcats have done this season has been pretty impressive, and it's almost gotten overlooked at this point in the season. You know, we talked about Linfield, I think, a lot in the first you know, four weeks, five weeks of the podcast up through the Pacific Lutheran game. And uh, and then, you know, the past three weeks, uh, they've crushed Whitworth 51-17, Lewis and Clark 80-84-7. I guess we talked about that a lot just in the sense that, you know, how did you get – how did they end up with 84 points? In there? And they weren't, you know, gratuitously trying to score. They just are that good this season. And then, uh, you know, at Willamette 56-15, a team, you know, Willamette was ranked on uh, going into the game and they won't be ranked. Ranked uh, probably uh, any, uh, certainly not ranked uh, coming out of uh, the week, and, and probably, I don't know if they'll sneak back into the rankings maybe at the end or not. But uh, you know, I, I I see Linfield right now doing with their schedule the same thing that Mountain Union's doing with its schedule, that Mary Harden Baylor is doing with its schedule, that North Central is doing. You know, in in Bethlehem and Whitewater are are, are doing it as well. Um, you know, to a, to a lesser degree, but just just dominating in all phases of the game. You know, Linfield hasn't given up um, more than more than twenty one points to anybody, and that was in, in a game they scored seventy one way back in uh, in in week two, uh, their their first game. And you know, since then, the the people the, the times people are scoring points on the game, or teams are scoring on them in the game. Uh, they're not scoring significant. Uh, points in the game. Willamette got on the board first, 7-0. Then Linfield ran off uh, six six touchdowns, and then Willamette scored on a 47-yard pass in the third quarter and 42-15, and, and Linfield scored again a couple of times. So I think it's going to be tough for teams to to put a lot of points on the board in in against Linfield either. And, we, you know, when you try to speculate a few weeks out what kind of team 
is Linfield going to see in the first round? You know, it's probably going to be one of its uh, conference rivals if they get in uh, via Pool C, because, uh, or maybe it'll be the the Skyac champion, um, you know, flying up to to the Pacific Northwest, and that that was going to be a tough matchup for them too, whoever it is, because uh, you know teams just aren't scoring in Linfield, and and Linfield's dominant. Uh, offensively, you mentioned the the run pass mix for them, so I, I'm very impressed with them so far. And it, and it almost gets it start it's starting at this point in the season because they've been dominating so much. Uh, it started to become a little ho hum, and, and you know we forget just to give them credit, I guess, for how good they really have performed. Yeah, it does really seem like those uh, top six teams, and I, I'm not sure if uh, Hobart is, at number seven fits into this uh, description as well. Maybe not, but. It's really hard, and you mentioned it in Snap Judgments on Sunday. It'd be really hard to unseat one of those uh, six teams in the uh, rankings because, as impressive as it was, you know, for Whitewater to beat a number eight team, uh, there was nowhere for them to go. There was nowhere for them to go up because everybody else won in similarly impressive fashion, and most of them against strong teams themselves. Yeah, I had actually on, on my ballot had moved Whitewater up uh, into the into the top five last week. Um, and, and so I, had I, I, I think. Moved and, and, but I think the group of, of six, you could make a case for any of them. And, and that six is, uh, to me, it's, it's Bethel, North Central, Whitewater, uh, Mary Harden, Baylor, Linfield and Mountain Union. And, and, you know, I, for, as speaking as someone who didn't have Mountain Union ranked number one, I had to give serious thought to whether I wanted to, to flip my number one vote now that Mountain Union has uh, beaten another ranked team and beaten a highly ranked team in Heidelberg, uh, you know, more more highly ranked than than any of the other ranked teams that uh, that any of those other teams in the top six had beaten. And, uh, you know, I just couldn't do it because what what changed between, you know, this week and last week or, you know, how can you take away credit from any of these teams? I, I think you could almost, you know, mix them up. I mean, you could make a case. I don't think Bethel has the the name recognition or the, or the, you know, explosive athletes necessarily, um, you know, some of these other teams have, but I, they look, look at this, their strength of schedule uh, is, is over 600. They've, um, you know, they played in, in what's been the most, the most competitive, really good conference in the country this season. Although, uh, although the, the Northwest conference probably give that a good run for the money too. Um, Bethel has a case, you know, to be right up there with the with these teams um, at, at number one. So I don't know if uh, I, I think that's a good sign for what's coming in the postseason. Um, but I just, you know, you just can't I, I, you can't take anything away from any of these uh, any of these six teams that they've all won in uh, in dominant fashion. You know, the the only two teams that didn't play a big big matchup this weekend were were Bethel. And uh, and Mary Harden Baylor and Mary Harden Baylor won eighty to zero and Bethel won fifty five six. So you know they they do what dominant teams should do when they're not playing a dominant team. So North Central is uh, the team that is uh, in the driver's seat in the CCIW. And uh, if, you know from what I saw when they played lacrosse earlier in the season, I, I'm not surprised by that. They've uh, they played really well this season. Uh, 46-17, uh, North Central kind of ended up pouring it on in the last uh, seven minutes or so. They scored three touchdowns. Um, and while you think that might be excessive, you got to remember the way the CCIW came down last year was it went to, uh, you know, the, the top three teams all split against each other, and it went to a uh, uh, the points differential tiebreaker. And uh, North Central, I mean, you could suggest that with a minute to go in this game a Saturday at Illinois Wesleyan, they should have uh, 
maybe kneeled it out. But you know, when your uh, when your conference may uh, your conference automatic bid may hang in the balance, I don't uh, have any problem with anybody taking another seven points. And you know, that's what the, what the rule creates. And I don't know how well uh, John Thorne and, and the guys at North Central are. Oh, how aware they are. They're aware. The if you remember, remember last year they scored uh, a garbage time touchdown against Wheaton to win the automatic bid, even though they were losing that game. Remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. That's right. And and, and uh, you know they scored this touchdown on Saturday with 41 seconds left. And it, you know, the reason I, I say is I don't know. I don't know how much coaches have time to think about stuff like that during the game. And uh, and if they do, you know, very that that's very smart. You know, but sometimes that's the type of thing that we think about later on uh, on on Saturday or Sunday, or we talk about it during the week. Uh, you know, to be able to come up with that in the moment and say, "Look, hey, you know, I know we're already at at a point in the game where we got this thing wrapped up and we don't want to get anybody hurt or anything, but um, but we need the points." And and you know, Illinois Westland's already beaten Wheaton uh, thirty to nineteen, so they're plus eleven if it comes down to that three way tie break. Uh, and you know North Central now is, is just doing as much as it can to get those points in its favor because it turns around this week and plays at Wheaton, and, and if they don't win that, that little brass bell game, you know that that point differential comes into play, and and you know maybe that's the type of thing that gets the the rule changed. There's some other uh, interesting ways to do tiebreakers, and and you know each conference picks its own tiebreaker. Uh, at least when it comes to the playoff bid, and and um, we've seen you know quarters led is the one that that came up uh, recently when we we're discussing the Midwest Conference. Um, we've seen uh, boy, I'm sure there's some other ones. Record against teams in descending order. You know who? How'd you how'd you play against the third team or the fourth team, and and, and those type of things. So uh, there, there are more tiebreakers out there. It doesn't have to be margin of victory. It sometimes seems like the fairest way to do it, but it does lead to situations like we saw on Saturday. For example, if in the Ohio Athletic Conference, let's say that uh, John Carroll and Heidelberg and Mount Union all end up tied at 8-1 and one in the conference, they'll all have split against each other and swept everybody else in the league, and it goes to one of those remaining tiebreakers, whether it's, you know, uh, some conferences, they draw a name out of the hat. Some conferences, it's the so-called Rose Bowl rule, and whoever uh, has been to the playoffs most recently gets eliminated. Uh, in the OAC, the way it comes down is that the other uh, – how many how many teams would that be? The other seven teams not involved in the tie, uh, their head coaches would vote. And if, 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 I'm one of, if I'm that group, I'm thinking, well, let's see. The one I want to get – one I want to have get my automatic bid is the one with the worst credentials – so that maximizes our opportunity to get two, if not three, teams in. So let's say that uh, the three teams end up tied uh, at uh, at eight and one in the conference and nine and one overall. Then you end up with Mountain Union. I think has got the best credentials because they have the uh, uh, well. They don't have that tiebreaker if they're not unbeaten, but uh, they're probably still in the best position to get in as an at large. And uh, it, it may be Heidelberg probably has the lowest strength of schedule. Uh, they'd be the one I think uh, I would advocate for them to vote in because then, you know, you've gotten your worst team off the off the board and into the field uh, via the vote. It's a it's just it's a crazy thing all the way around because there's no way to do a good tiebreaker in football because we only play each other once and we only have 10 games to deal with. Yeah, and you're talking about a hypothetical at that point. True. You know, Mountain Union obviously could just, you know, they don't have to deal with that if they just if they just went out. But 
you're, you're suggesting basically that the coaches pervert the process or they, they take, they're not voting necessarily for what the best team is, but they're voting to take advantage of, uh, you know, the, the rules to put their, their, um, like you said, the weakest team in so that, that the, the next best team would be, uh, have a great chance to get in, in pool C. And, and, you know, I don't know if, I don't know who would knock them for, for doing it that way. But at the same time, the fact that that, that scenario could even come into play means that, you know, maybe there needs to be um, a more standard tiebreaker uh, that, that works uh, across D3. But, um, but if anybody thinks of it, you know, let the commissioners know because <laughs> yeah. we, we haven't seen good, we, ha- we just, and this comes up every year and, and it gets, it gets worse when it's not a clean three-way tiebreaker too, when it comes to a four-way tiebreak or we've seen five uh, years ago in the centennial. So, um, it, it it can be you know like you said, Pat. It's football. The the number of results out there aren't that many, and so the tiebreakers can get uh, can get shaken. You can go pretty far down the tiebreaker list too. You know, like the seventh thing on the on the tie. You know, strength of strength of schedule in, in non conference games or something like that can be the the last tiebreaker. We're uh, gonna go over an hour. Just I'm just gonna let you guys know now, uh, as we are here, just a little over half hour through this podcast. Um, I thought uh you know obviously we're going to take your guys questions that's still coming up um one of the other uh exercises i thought we'd go through this week is uh this week we actually do have the regional rankings unlike what i said last week which was completely incorrect uh we did not have regional rankings last week i don't know if you noticed they did not actually come out on wednesday um so uh i think in three of our four regions you know who's going to be the number one team in the regional rankings in each region is pretty well set um I, you know, frankly, there's almost nobody besides Hobart who has, um, you know, who's unbeaten in the East region. That's a, a pretty easy choice. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor has, uh, is going to have, uh, is, is unbeaten, is going to have a win against a regionally ranked opponent, uh, in Wesley. I think it's safe to assume Wesley will be in the South regional rankings. Uh, that's a, it's pretty easy to put them, uh, up at that point and then Mount Union in the north and what's left is uh discussion over you know who who of of these uh, multiple unbeaten teams in the west right now who do we think would be number 1 when the seat, when the uh rankings come out on Wednesday well and and the key thing to that is who's in the west rankings and and not necessarily you know what's going to help determine 1 2 3 is who's in there at 7 8 9 10 because those are the wins against regionally ranked opponents are one of the five main criteria. And I'll just read these off for, uh, for all the listeners, because even if you know them, um, you need a refresher this time. And they year. changed I know I a little to... bit and they changed a little bit this year too. All right. So your primary criteria are your wins and losses uh, against region, regional opponents, strength schedule in region, head to head in region, common opponents in region results, versus regionally ranked opponents. And if you're ranked once, that there's going to be two sets of regional rankings? Or is that three sets, right? Is there, is there well, a final set? There's a final set that you and I and right. the rest of the world right. doesn't we'll never, get to see. We'll never see. So there's a, there's a pre-week 10 regional ranking, a pre-week 11 regional ranking, and then after the final week, week's results, uh, the regional committees will do another ranking. And use they, they don't release that. They just use that to help place the teams in the field. So there's technically three regional rankings and any team that's ranked in any set of those rankings, uh, they count, uh, you know, you're ranked once 
you're it's it's always a win over a regionally ranked opponent. Basically, what that means is if a team is tenth in week ten and then you know loses after that, they fall off the board. A playoff team can't get jobbed out of a playoff spot because some other team that they beat earlier in the season lost and fell out of the ranking. So they 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 took that. Um, out of the, the they took that factor out of it. Yeah, and that has been in and out in previous years. Some years it's been in, some years it's been out, and I wouldn't be surprised if that keeps changing because there's you know multiple schools of thought on that. But now that we only have three weeks worth of regional rankings, I would advocate that we should be doing that in all sports because um, you know there are so few data points to consider. Why would we take one off the table, really? One other thing to mention, of course, is that, uh, yeah, in-region competition is the primary thing. But now, of course, all Division Three opponents are included in that uh, in that criteria. So um, uh, that's not a good example. I'm trying to find a good example quickly. Uh, for example, John Carroll's win over St. Norbert. If St. Norbert were to somehow get in the West Regional rankings, then that would count bec- uh, for, for John Carroll over in the North because – uh, there are two Division three opponents playing against each other. So that's a little wrinkle that we didn't have in the past. And again, uh, I think that's a that's a, a, a beneficial addition as well. So back to what we're talking about, the West region. Who's going to be at the top? Um, you got Bethel, you have uh, Whitewater, you have Linfield at the top. The, the strength of schedule number, uh, you know, first of all, you, your wins and losses will all be um, equal if they all finish unbeaten. Uh, head-to-head, they don't have any head-to-head They don't have any common opponents. Um, at, least not ones so, where, at least not ones where they'll have a difference because they'll all be undefeated. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the strength of schedule number, it basically comes down to the two criteria, strength of schedule and uh, wins against regionally ranked opponents. And it'll be very uh, important to take a look at which teams come in at the bottom of the West regional rankings. Now, those won't necessarily be the teams that will make the playoffs in the West. There's going to be a Redlands and a Greenville and Concordia, Wisconsin that will, you know, maybe clinch, or, you know, it could be Greenville, it could be St. Scholastica, but those teams will clinch playoff bids and they'll be in the playoffs in the West region, but they're not necessarily going to be in the West region rankings. And so if a St. Thomas, a two loss team, or, or, um, you know, maybe Concordia, I think Concordia might actually has got a playoff possibility still. So I don't want to use them as an example, but someone like St. Thomas or St. John's um, who who has, you know, multiple losses, but they may end up in, the, you know, the, the WIAC team that doesn't win this week between Platteville and Oshkosh, they may still end up in the West regional rankings. And if those teams are in, that's really going to help uh, Bethel, Whitewater and, uh, and Linfield to, to a certain degree. Bethel has, um, Regionally ranked uh, opponent victories over uh, St. Thomas, Concordia, Moorhead, and Wartburg right now. I think that Wartburg game is is really big because uh, you know they, you schedule a pretty good team for your first game. You win that game. Um, well, that was way back in week one. Bethel uh, won at home. Actually, it was in week two, but it was week one for them. Um, Bethel won that game thirty to seventeen, and now, now Wartburg is uh, you know a team that's out in front. In, in Iowa, and that win is going to help Bethel uh, in this case. Bethel also has the strongest strength of schedule among the three, at least currently, 606. Whitewater's at 603, which is also a really good figure. Linfield is at 549. Anything above 500 is good, so all these teams are all uh, pretty good, but, but Bethel and Whitewater are outstanding. 
I think what's really important, Keith, is to try to figure out uh, or you know have some idea who those the other couple of teams are going to be in the regional rankings. I can identify eight teams fairly certain will be in Wednesday's regional ranking: uh, Bethel, Whitewater, Linfield, in no particular order; Oshkosh, Platteville, Pacific Lutheran, Illinois College, Concordia, Moorhead. Uh, I think all eight of those teams should be in. So, if for example, if uh, one of the other teams ends up being Pacific. Uh, Pacific right now at six and one with a five thirty seven strength of schedule. That's going to help Linfield down the road. Linfield plays them in the final week. That could give them a boost and and put them in the number one spot by the uh, end of the season. If indeed Pacific becomes a, a team that uh, counts as a regionally ranked opponent, um, you know if if St. Thomas gets in, that benefits Bethel. Um, or if St. John's gets in, uh, that could eventually benefit Bethel. They play each other the final week of the season. Um, I don't see Whitewater having anybody else uh, on its schedule that uh, has an opportunity to become regionally ranked, but they have the two teams in their conference who should be in in this week's regional rankings. That's actually one of the things that um, is kind of an unsung benefit of having the conference schedule so backloaded in a lot of these regions is that um, because uh, Oshkosh and Platteville haven't given each other the second loss yet, uh, one of them is going to be, both of them are going to be regionally ranked this week. And if, uh, you know, if that game had been played in September or October, then we probably wouldn't be talking about it this way. Yeah, you're right. And, and that's that, that benefit of, um, you know, ranked once always ranked and, and that really helps. So, you know, these three West teams, uh, we're looking at basically just the two main criteria of the, of the five, uh, primary criteria between Bethel, Whitewater, Linfield, uh, I mentioned the strength of schedule figures, and uh, the regionally ranked opponents that I have written down, Bethel would be would be Warburg, Concordia, Moorhead, St. Thomas. They also play St. John's on, on the final week of the season, and that's not that's no gimme victory for them. But if Bethel does win that game, that could give them as many as four games uh, or wins against regionally ranked opponents. Whitewater, you mentioned, Wash U, maybe an outside chance of being ranked in the South. They're six and two. I have 10 teams currently on the board in the South. Wash U could be the 10th or 11th team, um, but I don't know how likely that is. But that strength of schedule figure um, at 603. And then Linfield, uh, P- you know, Pacific Lutheran, Willamette uh, Pacific. I don't think Willamette's going to get ranked, um, but it's but certainly a possibility. But, I, you know, PLU and Pacific uh, would we'll give them two games against regionally ranked opponents. And, and I think Linfield caught a kind of tough break this year. You know, you schedule – Harden Simmons and Cal Lutheran thinking maybe you have an opportunity with games against those teams that those will be uh, games that will help out your strength of schedule later in the season and help out your, uh, you know, potentially wins over regionally ranked opponents to help you get in. And uh, those teams didn't do any favors uh, for Linfield this year. Cal Lutheran, uh, right three and four, which is uh, I think a little bit of a surprise. Um, And then uh, Harden Simmons, you know, right around the, doing what they've done the past several seasons, to, to be quite honest, you know, being that, that team that uh, could put up a lot of points but could give up a lot of points. They're three and five right now. So um, Linfield, I think, tried to schedule well and, and just, you know, hasn't broke their way this season and it may, uh, may mean they're the third team in, in the West Regional Rankings, even though they're the number two team in the top 25 poll. One of the things to remember is that uh, that tiebreaker among unbeaten teams, which was uh, thrown into the mix a few years ago, means that the committee can consider last year's playoff results uh, for teams that 
uh, are unbeaten. So if you think about that, that doesn't help Whitewater for the first time uh, in the history of this tiebreaker. Whitewater did not make the playoffs last year. Uh, so I think that, that doesn't help them against Bethel. Uh, Linfield advanced further in the playoffs than Bethel did, but they're uh, they're not as close together in strength of schedule. Uh, Linfield, you, uh, Keith detailed why. Uh, their numbers at 549 coming into the week as, a, as opposed to the six. Oh, six for Bethel. I really think Bethel is going to be our, our number one team in the region when the when we see it on Wednesday. Yeah, Pat, remember that tiebreaker only comes into play if all else is equal. And, and Well, and the, def- I, the question is what defines equal? And when you're talking right. about a committee, we never know. Right. And, and that's true. I think it's almost up to the interpretation of the committee. For instance, if we were just you and I were the committee and we were taking these numbers as we know them today, we wouldn't look at the difference between a 606 strength of schedule and a 603 strength of schedule with Whitewater and, and call that a difference. That's really basically equal. Um, you know, but four games against regionally ranked opponents and two, that would that would be different. You know, that would be a major difference. So that wouldn't be uh, all equal. So uh, and I think the difference between 606 and 549, that's a significant difference in strength of schedule. But um, you know, maybe we're going a little too far down the uh, the the rabbit hole here. As far as um, this is why people get the podcast, though, right? I mean, I hope we so. like these numbers and, and, and to get into the real granular stuff of uh, of, of how these uh, playoff teams get decided. And it's weird because it's such um, sometimes it's it's so little separating these teams. And, and I know you deal with this stuff when you when you do basketball. Pat and, and and you know some of the other sports. There's so much more on the board to 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 help sort it out. And with football, there just isn't. So you know you're basically going off uh, off you know you're narrowing it down to just these two credits. I would say one thing too. Uh, I'm not sure Warburg is in this regional ranking this week, but uh, you know if they if they are, that certainly helps uh, Stoke Bethel's case. Uh, one of the other big questions that comes up year after year over the last I don't know how many years it is now that. Uh, Mountain Union has been uh, the number one seed in the bracket of primarily East regional teams um, is uh, whether the number one team in the East can uh, can hold that spot and keep Mountain Union out. And it doesn't really look like it right now. Um, Hobart right now, yes, unbeaten. Uh, strength of schedule sits uh, smack dab in the, uh, at 500. Uh, they're not going to have any results one way or the other against regionally ranked opponents. And I would... Uh, I would not have any problem if the committee uh, replaced them and, and put somebody else at the uh, top spot in that region when it comes to bracket time in a couple of weeks. I, I wouldn't either, Pat. And, and this is that I to do this briefly as possible. If, you ha- if you're looking at the whole playoff picture on one page, uh, as I am right now, right, I have you know 38 teams, you know, there's only be 32 in, but potentially these teams are you know, dividing this, this paper here by into quadrants. The West is full, the South is full, the North is full, and the East I have Hobart, potentially Gaudet, Ithaca, Framingham State, you know, the Rowan Brockport winner, whoever wins out of Endicott and Salve, Regina, and that's it. Those are your East playoff teams right now. I'm, I could be leaving someone out, but the, it's, it's just not a, a really strong East region. And so they're going to have to move teams in. Uh, at some point, some way, whether that's Lebanon Valley and Johns Hopkins being technically South teams that, that end up in a bracket made up of mostly East teams. I know it's not an East region bracket technically, or they can mix it up like they did 
uh, you know, last year and the year before, you know, we had in Linfield fly out to Wesley in the second round. Uh, so, you know, they, the committee can, can sort of do, uh, can, is at liberty to do whatever it wants to do. But um, the East, they're just, uh, besides Hobart, I think there isn't really a monster uh, team. And so they could decide to give Hobart the number one seed, or you could have Mountain Union and Hobart be the one, two in the East because there's, there's, there's no other real great East team. There's no NJAC monster team. There's no Wesley that they could put out there. You could do Mountain Union and Hobart, and then you still would have North Central in one of the West, you know, whether it's like Bethel or Whitewater could be in, in a bracket. And then you have two real strong teams at the top of the West bracket, whoever's left over out of Bethel, uh, Whitewater, Linfield, and then, you know, Mary Harden, Baylor, and, and the South where you have Johns Hopkins, Millsaps, Texas Lutheran, and finishing undefeated and all playing at home. I, I think, you know, it's hard to verbalize that and explain it really quickly, but basically there's a, there's a lot of teams in the South that are deserving of a home game, a lot in the North that are deserving of home games, and then in, in, in a lot in the West, which is pretty typical, but, but just really uh, just the one right now, maybe two uh, in the East. Uh, producers putting a bug in my ear just to remind us that Lebanon Valley is an East region team because the Mac is in the East region. Uh, if I look at these four teams that we've picked at the top of these brackets, there's one thing that stands out to me, basically. Mount Union played a regionally ranked opponent uh, in a non-conference game as well. Mount Mary Harden Baylor played a regionally ranked opponent as a non-conference team. Uh, Bethel or Linfield, however it works out, they're going to have regionally ranked opponents on their schedule, and Hobart uh, does not, and that's a pretty easy uh, delimiter for me. Uh, that that's a that's a that w- I would again I would say I would have no problem doing that. Um, let's uh, talk through some of the uh, questions that you guys sent, and um, as we uh, have been having this uh, recording this podcast, we've had a couple of new ones. So I'm going to throw the curveballs out there first at Keith um, uh, because I think this is a particularly interesting one, something that could have a big impact that I don't know if I've heard a whole lot about. Uh, Keith, are you hearing anything on the new targeting rule? And I know uh, they're asking if there are any stats on disqualifications from the targeting rule in Division Three, and there aren't. But uh, have you heard anything about you know how that uh, is trickling down to our level? I haven't heard anything about it in uh, in in Division Three, and I know it's a it's a huge deal, not just in the NFL, but all the way through college football. And uh, the rule basically is is as you assume it would be as stated it's uh you know no player shall uh target or initiate contact to the head or neck areas of a defenseless opponent with the helmet forearm hand fist elbow or shoulder and uh by rule when in question at the foul which i think leaves a lot of room for interpretation and uh it, you know it's the type of thing that i guess could uh, theoretically cost somebody a, a a you know big play late in the game could cost somebody a game but uh but no, i haven't heard a, a, a lot about it uh yet I know that there have been kids in Division Three who have been, uh, who have been ejected, but you know, I don't have any. Uh, I don't have any more specific information on that either. Um, this is a question that we've, I think, we've gotten before. We've uh, read about before um, about the uh, about the state of the Allegheny football program. Um, uh, I'm just going to quote that once proud program has completely fallen apart. I, I can't argue with that. Uh, and I've heard rumblings that the administration wouldn't mind putting football on the chopping block. Keith, I've heard nothing to that, uh, to that extent. And to be honest with you, um, I would not think that that's the case, uh, with the current athletic director. I would have thought maybe with the previous athletic director based on, uh, that person's background might be less amenable to football, but the, the current AD has, um, 
you know, has, has football ties, it seems very unlikely, but um, regardless, uh, Allegheny's certainly fallen on hard times football wise. Really hard times. Just 44 points scored the whole season. Uh, only one game where they've, they've scored uh, in double digits. That was a 33-16 loss to Worcester. So that's their high water mark this year. Um, I, I don't know if I'm maybe I, I may be getting the same email from the same person as you, I, I but so. I, I basically have, have um, you know, heard the same thing and, and I don't have any uh, insight on uh, whether the program, uh, you know, is, is on hard times, but I think it would take more than, than one bad season to, uh, to, to get rid of, of a, a football program, especially one that's won a, uh, a national championship. Yeah, that's a that's a very very good point, uh, Keith. What other uh, questions did uh, you pick up via Twitter? So uh, the, we had two that sort of were. I guess probably should should take these two together. Uh, one it, one was about um, who who did we see? Uh, how did we see the Empire Eight shaking out? Uh, given that uh, Salisbury lost uh, to Alfred this weekend. Uh, Ithaca also in the mix in that conference. And then uh, this was a, a specifically related to the Empire, but I think we could sort of stretch it across uh, all of D3. Do, do we see a two-loss uh, Empire 8 team getting in to the postseason? I, I think we might as well address that one uh, in full. So do you, you want you want to take a stab at uh, who you think is uh, is going to win the conference? <laughs> Great question. Uh, you know, I think the, the fact that... Um... If I remember correctly, Ithaca's in the driver's seat. Obviously, they have to go to Salisbury, and that's not an easy trip or an easy game. Um, but, you know, Salisbury's, uh, or uh, I think Ithaca is in control of their own destiny, if I remember correctly, uh, because Ithaca's already beaten Alfred. Uh, and if Ithaca beats Salisbury, then, uh, you know, I think that's it. That clinches it for him. Ithaca has the Cortica Jug game the final week. So, um, I definitely think Ithaca's in good position. If that doesn't happen, so let's say Salisbury beats um, Salisbury beats Ithaca, then uh, Salisbury and Alfred are tied. Assuming uh, what Alfred has uh, coming up, I'll have to check that here in a second. And of course, remember that uh, those teams have another game to play in the conference. So Alfred uh, hosts Utica and then travels to St. John Fisher. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes, uh, that makes things more interesting. It's obviously, it's real easy if Ithaca wins, uh, if Ithaca doesn't win, then it becomes a little more complicated and maybe gets into tiebreaker territory. But I, I also think, you know, frankly, uh, Ithaca is playing pretty well right now. And that's, uh, you know, that also, uh, puts a, another check in their box. Um, but I know that Ithaca versus Salisbury uh, and Ithaca versus uh, the option teams in general. It's always been better when the game's at Butterfield on grass and, um, you know, they don't have that, uh, that advantage this year against Salisbury. Well, I, I could be persuaded to disagree with you and, and say, um, you know, Ithaca wins and, and I close the book, but I also could be persuaded to disagree. I don't think it's uh, unlikely that, that uh, Ithaca goes down to Salisbury and loses and then, St. John Fisher beats Alfred at Alf- Alfred. Wow. Uh, I guess Sol- I'm getting the Salisbury and now yeah. I got the Alfred. Or, or it could just be that we just make up words every week on the podcast. Um, <laughs> you're the uh, game. I, you're the gamiest analyst. I know it, it's to it's, it's actually completely likely for, for, you know, it's a, a scenario we could envision. Uh, Ithaca going down to Salisbury, losing Alfred, uh, losing to St. John Fisher the following week, week, which actually would leave, 
Salisbury as the only one loss team in the in the uh, conference. And I guess they would still at five and three. Uh, so that would be seven and three overall by that point. Uh, they, they would win the conference. Uh, so that's certainly a possibility as well. Um, we did get one other question on Facebook. Is this the best year of the podcast? And I had, you know, I don't really know how to judge whether the podcast uh, is having a particularly good year, better year than previous years. Um, I know that we've had a lot of good things to talk about because Division Three seems a little more wide open this year. Um, the person also mentioned the website redesign. We've gotten a lot of compliments on that over the last uh, five days. It went into play last Tuesday. Um, got a lot of compliments on it on Saturday from people who hadn't seen it before. So um, I would encourage those people to come more often. But you know that's uh, that's cool too. We like seeing you on game day. Um, it's certainly been a it's been a fun year at uh, d3football.com. I I just know that uh, even though for uh, 200 or so teams this season's going to wrap up here in a couple weeks, you and I have seven weeks to go. So it's hard to feel like uh, we can start recapping the season yet. Yeah, and I guess we've got to start making that pitch that you know we'll uh, even if even if your team's last game is November 9th or November sixteenth, um, not only will we'll be around with with playoff coverage uh, for the next five weeks, but we, you know we everything from all region to to wrapping up the season, uh, there'll still be reason for you to check back um, well into December. I think somebody wanted to get our Wabash Wittenberg prediction. Uh, one of the things that I saw. Uh, a stat that I saw pass across my uh, uh, brain cells here in the last 24 hours was that the Wabash defense and special teams have scored more points than Wabash as a team has allowed. And that's kind of mind boggling. Wabash is obviously playing really well right now. Uh, a lot of it against overmatched competition to be sure. Um, you know, as much as we talked about Heidelberg not having been tested so far this year, uh, you can say the exact same thing about Wabash, frankly. Uh, you know, they're they're eight and zero, and they're blowing the doors off of people. But you know, who's the best team that they've played? Uh, you know, is it Worcester? Uh, is it Ohio Wesleyan? You know, neither of those uh, teams is a world beater, and maybe not uh, a team in the top one hundred at that point. So this is going to be a big test for uh, for uh, for Wabash. Wittenberg at least has played Butler. They didn't play Butler well. But uh, they've seen what a what a high level football program can do for this uh, against them. At least they have some basis of comparison. I don't know what to make of uh, this game other than the fact that it's going to be uh, it's going to be a doozy, and we'll see it uh, decide the conference championship. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't I don't have any greater insight than than that. You know, because I think the two teams have been pretty much mirror images of each other when when you see how they stack up against the rest of the of the north coast uh do, very dominant on defense you know games where they're where teams are, are barely getting 200 yards of offense against them not putting points on the board meanwhile they they can score in every, every which way and it's so it's so tough to take that watch these teams you know beat up on teams that they're much better than and then try to extrapolate that into how are they going to play against a team that they match up with perfectly? So it, it, it makes a uh, makes it a tough question to answer, and when I don't have a, a major, um, uh, I, I mean, you know, by Friday we'll have a pick on it. I don't have we don't have a pick on on Saturday, but by Friday we'll, may, we'll maybe have uh, batted it around enough where we'll, we'll definitely take a crack at it uh, in triple take. Um, the other half of the of the question: Will any two loss teams 
make it in pool C, whether it's uh, one from the Empire or not, we should probably uh, tackle that one. Yeah, and I uh, guess I don't see it very likely uh, unless we have a lot of losses here in the final couple of weeks. You know, we would talk about the two conferences that we've talked about already where we could uh, have conceivably ended up with uh, with three one-loss teams. You know, I think we'll definitely see a WIAC at large. We could see uh, two OAC at larges, but I think we'll probably see one. Um, you know, Concordia Moorhead is in good shape, uh, in pool C out of the MIAC if they finish out. Um, you know, there's just the five pool C slots and that's three of them accounted for already. Uh, the Wabash Wittenberg loser, I think would be in a position to, uh, be in there. Pacific Lutheran's in a position to be in there. There's going to a lot of one loss teams. They're going to have really good credentials before we get down to talking about, uh, St. John's or St. Thomas or a two loss team out of the empire eight, uh, and I didn't even mention CCIW. So that <laughs> that tells you there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of quality teams out there with one loss, and I'm not sure we get down to two loss teams when we have just five at large bids. Yeah, Pat, you, you hit it. You hit all the all the pool C teams right now. You're looking at potentially six really strong candidates for five spots. Uh, whoever um, loses the the or whoever wins the, the John Carroll Heidelberg game, uh, that would leave two. I'm, I'm assuming, of course, they go, that team goes on to lose to Mountain Union, which is is not necessarily uh, a a uh, assumption we should bank on. But let's just say the OAC penciled them in for one bid. Northwest Conference, I think, is penciled in for one. Um, and you know, if, if for some reason Pacific beats Linfield at the end of the season, that just makes everything crazy. But uh, WIAC, we're, you know, we, we're in basically, you know, Whitewater. I think is is in, and whoever. Whoever wins out of uh, Platteville and Oshkosh has a shot. Uh, Concordia Moorhead, you mentioned Wabash Wittenberg loser. Uh, Wittenberg will have could potentially have two losses, but one will be uh, out of division, and so you sort of toss that one out. And then the CCIW potentially, um, you know, it, it, you know that that could be really um, three three teams are all still in the mix there. Uh, North Central obviously is the one that can uh, that can pick up the loss and be in best shape in Pool C, uh, and maybe that's the least likely scenario. But yeah, those six I think for five spots, uh, I, I think unless you, unless you see, and, and I think Pat, what you said too, if you see losses, that that doesn't necessarily clear the the Pool C picture up because what it may do is knock Pool A teams into Pool C, and Pool C may actually get stronger. But just because the schedule is so backloaded, so many good teams are still facing each other here in week 10 and week 11. Well, that Pacific Linfield game, actually, uh, Linfield could already have clinched that game. Uh, the automatic bid coming in and Pacific could need to win that game to finish with one loss and be then a really strong pool C candidate. That's a situation where a team could play its way in. That's currently not really being talked about. Um, Keith mentioned triple take. Uh, we score triple take here uh, and we're... Uh, beyond an hour. So if you cut off after an hour, um, I'm sorry, you should keep listening. Um, game of the week. We had some uh, great games. Uh, of course, Ryan and I both took Mountain Union Heidelberg. Keith, you took Platteville Whitewater. And obviously the, those games both had uh, some significant bearing on the Division Three football season. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there wasn't a wrong pick there and, and there were there were games of the week that had better endings, whether you want to talk about the, the guy that the gal that ending or, you know, like uh, even Rowan Cortland state, which was just a 10, nine game, the whole second half that probably, I'm sure that was a, a tense game. To watch. So there were great games really from, from coast to coast. 
Um, but yeah, I, I would, you know, top 25 matchups, I guess none of them had uh, the, the last play type of finish that we crave in, in a matchup like that. But, um, you know, Mountain Union Heidelberg was certainly competitive. The Gallaudet Becker game, that to me is just crazy. I know we're going to uh, go off the beaten track here for a second, but, um, you know, someone asked if I've ever seen anything like that before. I, I suspect I probably have. I just can't. Uh, I can't put my finger on it right now, but you know, to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat like that when Becker is lining up for a makeable field goal with two seconds to go, 31 yarder uh, that would win the game, and then uh, Gallaudet blocks that kick and returns it all the way for the touchdown and uh, keeps an unbeaten season alive against a team that had won just one game all season. There's just a lot of uh, a, a lot of various little pieces that make that uh, pretty spectacular. Well, if we're talking about little pieces to that picture that's on the D3football.com uh, front page right now with Beckel, Becker's uniform, those are a pretty eye-catching uni. They look like the, the brighter version of the Jaguars. I remember um, – you remember last year? I think it was last season, the, uh, uh, or maybe it was the beginning of this season, Becker kids tweeting those uniforms and asking if they were the best uniforms in Division Three, and uh, kind of getting uh, roundly shouted down for that, but they certainly are – I think eye catching is a good word for it. Yeah. It's, you know, some people like older uniforms, plainer uniforms, and some people like, uh, you know, all the frills. You know, it's the, it's the picture after that uh, with uh, the two Lebanon Valley players uh, celebrating that uh, overtime win against Del Val. Um, that's, well, actually, that's almost at the opposite end, I guess. Um, and as long as we're on the front page, uh, mid season coaching changes. Um, you know, the, the Loris coach, um, you know, I'm going to refer to these guys as, you know, leaving involuntarily because, um, you know, I, I, I suspect, but, uh, I certainly, uh, I know a little bit more about that at LaGrange because I understand that, uh, uh, Todd Mooney was forced out, even though, uh, he wouldn't return phone call or text message, uh, which is not uncommon for a coach who's been ousted, but then to see, okay, so they, uh, so they oust the defensive coordinator and they oust the head coach uh, and put the offensive guy in charge and the vaunted offense manages just 10 points and they lose to Christopher Newport. I, I think, you know, whoever in the administration decided that they needed to have the big name as the head coach, um, you know, probably got a little uh, taste of medicine over the weekend. I found it unusual, Keith, I guess, to say that in uh, remember the couple of cases that we had last year where coaches left mid season, uh, the people who replaced them were tabbed as interim head coaches, but not in this case, uh, LaGrange named Matt mummy, the head coach. And that just seemed odd to me. And it was, it's certainly strange and, you know, nobody, um, quits mid season for no reason. Nobody steps down a night before a game, um, for, for for no reason, it's usually something uh, behind that that's uh, you know, people are uncomfortable talking about, and and sometimes the the whole story doesn't trickle out until months later, or weeks later, or, or sometimes it, ne- it never uh, truly trickles out. And if we had a full time staff of reporters, maybe we would send somebody there and, and, and sniff it out, but uh, but we don't. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's just a strange situation at Lagrange. You mentioned the thirteen ten result. It's uh, it, it certainly didn't um, justify the decision. If the decision was, you know, to to focus on that, that high powered offense, which has been uh, up until that game, 
uh, had been outstanding, had been the number one passing offense in the country at one point. Um, and, and it's the USA South, too. It's not like a, a conference where you can't uh, roll up big numbers or, or a conference you you know you could never see Lagrange winning. That, that's something that could happen there. And I think it's strange too, just because you know we'd gotten to know uh, Todd Mooney a little bit, just talking to him over the years, and everything seemed normal. But you know you just never know what the. It's it's hard for me to comment on it, I guess, uh, without knowing the whole story. And and I I think too, you know, coaches don't want to burn bridges if, if they want to work again. So even if they really want to tell us what really is going down, you know, they don't because. Uh, that's that's the type of thing that 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 next AD that might hire them, you know, we'll see that. In triple takes, surprisingly close game picks. Uh, Ryan took Saint Scholastica at Minnesota Morris. Uh, you guys can look that score up. Uh, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to mention it here. It was not surprisingly close. Uh, Benedictine at Concordia Chicago. Um, I had. Uh, thought that Concordia Chicago was playing a little bit better and they lost by 21. I'm not sure how surprisingly or close that is. Uh, Benedictine had not really been blowing teams out. Um, but, uh, you know, Benedictine at six and two Concordia Chicago at one and seven. I don't know if that justifies a 21 point differential or not. And then Keith took Louisiana college at Texas Lutheran, which I think was the game we uh, expected it would be. Yeah, if you expected Texas Lutheran to win, then uh, then yeah, it was, and it, it wasn't really all that close. So I, I don't get a, I don't get a point for that at all. Uh, Texas Lutheran, you know, led that game uh, by seventeen at, at you know at a point in the fourth quarter. So I, I think they won it pretty convincingly. And now you know, if you were reluctant like I was to get on uh, the Texas Lutheran bandwagon, I think you can you can at least um, you know grab onto the side and go on for the ride. Uh, I, I think we're pretty much going to get a Texas Lutheran at Mary Harden Baylor uh, first round playoff game. And I don't have any problem with that. Yeah, me either. Uh, Texas Lutheran played the rest of the American Southwest Conference. So you might as well finish it off in week 12 um, and, uh, and and get the game that they had uh, they had been avoiding this season. Uh, most likely top 25 team to get upset. Uh, these were three pretty good picks. Um I took St. John's, uh, Keith took Salisbury, both of those teams lost, and, and Johns Hopkins was Ryan's pick, and you know, Johns Hopkins had to score two fourth-quarter touchdowns to beat her sinus. Yeah, and, and that's one of those cases where the name team had, had been uh, the, at the top the centennial all season, they've been ranked, and, and you know, we kind of didn't pay attention or science to, to borrow Ryan's phrase. Our sinus has been moving ninja-like through a one-loss season, hiding in the centennial shadows. Ah, a young Grantland Rice, he sounds like. <laughs> um, okay, not, not quite. But, I mean, our sinus was a little bit below the radar, and so that score may have surprised some some far-off observers, people who don't pay close attention to the centennial. But I think that um, that wasn't that big of a surprise for, for folks who have been following the centennial this year. The on-the-radar picks. Ryan takes Albion. Uh, Albion beat Olivet, and they have, uh, as he mentions, they have uh, the two other conference uh, contenders uh, coming up in the final two weeks. I took Louisiana College uh, because I thought that pa- uh, Pool B teams should have the Wildcats on their radar. Um, you know, they didn't win that game, though. Uh, Keith took Octavius McCoy, and I uh, did look up yesterday because I had been wanting to follow that game on live stats, and Mass Dartmouth doesn't seem to have live stats, but. Uh, many hours after the game, I discovered that Octavius McCoy ran, uh, 23 times for 123 yards. Man, I had him pegged for 200, so I don't get a point. 
which team with a losing record has the most to play for? Ryan took North Park. I took Bether. Bether. I took Becker and Keith. <laughs> and Keith took Tufts. I can't speak anymore. Uh, I turn into a pumpkin after an hour and ten minutes. Yeah, I guess I guess you get the the closest. You get like nine nine tenths of a point for Becker, right? Because they were lining up for the game winning field goal uh, before before the Bison uh, blocked it and took it back. Uh, which game are you surprised means as much as it did? Uh, Hampton, Sydney at Guilford. I mean, these are games that didn't need to perform in any particular way uh, in order to uh, correctly answer the question. Lyco at Kings. Kings won that game, by the way. All right. I, I would argue that they all performed, though. Well, that's – well, I guess Hampton, Sydney at Guilford kind of performed in a strange way, right? 52 nothing. Right, which which Guilford went into the day as the uh, leader in the ODAC – uh, lost by 52, you know, Hampton Sydney. Uh, I'm, I'm just repeating myself from snap judgments here, but Hampton Sydney, you're right. They're the best team in, in the ODAC, except they lost to Shenandoah last week who lost to Randolph Macon 42, seven on Saturday. And so that makes Macon the best team, right? Except that they lost to Guilford just last week. So within the span of two weeks, these, this, these, the, there's a four way, quadrangle not at the top of the ODAC because Shenandoah is not really at the top but they're they're in there enough to uh to to mess things up and 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 right now um Guilford Hampton Sydney making still at the top of uh of the conference with uh two weeks ago Keith you took the Rhodes Birmingham Southern game and Birmingham Southern pretty much knocked Rhodes out of playoff contention by uh handing them loss number two yeah, and I think that actually for the pool B watchers across the country, uh, that actually really helped. Right now, I think you know you, you're. We were looking at you know five or six teams potentially in pool B, and and Saturday's results pretty much narrowed it down. I think you have Texas Lutheran, Millsaps, and probably Framingham State there. Uh, you know, Rhodes and 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 Center and Millsaps were all in the picture. And uh, Wesley still hanging around the outside, you know, hoping maybe for one more loss from from somebody somewhere and, and hoping they could sneak into the postseason, I guess. But but right now they'd be out. Uh, we ranked Rhodes 94th in kickoff. I like that. That's a I feel pretty good about that now. The, you know, the, one of the ones I had concerns with the day we did it <laughs> was Pacific was Pacific at 120. I thought, man, that's high. But, yeah, I remember you just you, you gave your reasons and I was like, OK. Uh, I'll go. I, I believe you. And it uh, turned out you were righter than that. I was. Yeah, I was low at 120. We should have been right, talking right. about them in the 60s or 70s. Um, you know, and to remember off the top of my head what my reasons were, I, I remember, you know, we talk about this a lot. Uh, the startup programs who begin to turn the corner in year three usually have a big upswing in year four. You know, they have that veteran crew, uh, you know, a bunch of guys who have played for, you know, who have played 30 games and a lot of guys who have started 30 games and they uh, could be in a position to gel. I remember specifically thinking that Pacific would not beat Adrian. Uh, oh, well, I was wrong on that. Uh, they could, uh, they could very easily finish eight and two. Uh, that would be a fantastic season for them with a shot at nine and one. And if they go nine and one by beating Linfield, whew, uh, they have a rematch against Linfield the next week. Most likely that that would be their reward. Uh, unless they somehow, uh, they and Pacific Lutheran both get in. I'm not, I don't even know if that's possible. I'm painting myself out of the corner now by picking a colorful nickname. Ryan took the <laughs> golden Eagles of Brockport state. Uh, I took the blue streaks of John Carroll cause that was a gimme. 
Um, and you took the Blue Boys of Illinois College, which was uh, gimme-ish as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was. And, and there weren't too many. You know, I don't know what your process is for triple take. But I look <laughs> oh, at this. God. I, I really you don't want to know. <laughs> okay, well, I look at the schedule first, and I identify a whole bunch of games that interest me. It could be, you know, 15 to 20, 25 games. And then, and then I read Ryan's email. Ryan uh, will pick out the questions and uh, and then I see, OK, do any of these are, you know, naturally match up? And then sometimes they just don't. And, and so um, the Blue Boys, it was. And, and yeah, they um, they did. They did beat uh, Monmouth. They're uh, still in the running for, for uh, a uh, pretty good, I would say, probably a home game in the postseason. And they certainly could be. I mean, if you go you go unde- un- undebeaten, unbeaten or undefeated, undebeaten. Uh, New really, word of the week. Yes. That's it. We've got it. Thank you. New word of the week is undebeaten. Um, you know, if but if you know if they run the table, how about that? Um, they're certainly in position to to get a home game. I would think it depends on how many unbeaten teams there are. Uh, you know, because Illinois College has barely been in the playoff discussion before, we don't really know what the facility is like. Um, that could be an issue. It is sometimes. Um, you know, I think personally, most people would rank them behind the Wyack runner-up. Uh, maybe behind Concordia Moorhead. But the other thing too, is that Illinois college is not really in the geographic footprint of the rest of the West region. In a lot of cases, they're not only in Illinois as the name would suggest, but they're really uh, fairly Southern Illinois. So they might end up being in the North region and that might actually be a better position for them. They might have a, a better chance at either getting a home game or at least getting a, uh, a, a winnable road game as maybe a six seed or a five seed. Uh, I don't think at, uh, at 10 and 0, they wouldn't be a seven seed in in the north because i think they would you know the 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 nacc winner would be in there as well um you know that sort of thing uh so i think that yeah they um we would definitely continue to talk about them as the season progresses and keith did we have any unfinished business here as we come up on an hour 20 no, not really. Uh, I just want to make one one comment about. Uh, I remember seeing maybe I watched part of a game one video one week. Uh, Illinois College facility. I thought it was a pretty pretty new newish facility, and uh, so I would assume they'd be able to host a playoff game. And while you were talking, because we have a newfangled fancy pants. That's what I was going to uh, do. D three website. I went and looked it up. Yeah, it doesn't answer my, you know, it doesn't tell me how many bathrooms it has and whether it meets NCAA criteria <laughs> and all that. But uh, but it looks pretty fancy on the picture, too. So uh, if you're still with us at an hour 20 and you're bored, look up the uh, Illinois College uh, facility. It looks like it could host a play- playoff game. That yeah. would be my unofficial assessment. Lots of brick. Yeah, looks nice. Uh, press box might be a little small, but probably big enough to meet the minimum standards. I don't believe bathrooms are on the list for the minimum standards, uh, but the important thing is that uh, whether you can keep people from just wandering in without paying, that is one of the biggest criteria for the NCAA because it's all about the, uh, well, the Jacksons. I'm not sure about the Benjamins at the Division three level. Clearly not. Um yeah, you know, we Hamilton. could talk the Hamiltons. It's right, we actually have a Hamilton. We have a Hamilton. Right. That's true. All right, sorry. Not in the playoffs right. though. Um, I'm, I'm fairly certain. Um, the uh, so and Keith mentioned the redesign, and if you have not been to a team page since then, I definitely recommend it. Um, this is the this particular part of the redesign is something that people have been talking about uh, to me since about 2002. 
um, because the guys at d2football.com uh, did this on their one of their initial rollouts. They have a, a photo of each stadium. I, I like to think that we present them better. Uh, they're front and center for you. But it did take us a little while to get here. Uh, we're here now. If you're one of the 85 or so schools out of the 245 that haven't sent us a stadium photo, um, you know, you've got a big black box on your page. It might be better if it didn't have a big black box on your page. And I know that there are SIDs who have heard from coaches saying, hey, you guys need to send them a, a stadium photo. We did send an email out uh, a week ago Friday um, with some dimensions, uh, and specs and that sort of thing. And I would definitely, if you're looking for examples, I would, uh, recommend the Dubuque page is a pretty fantastic looking photo. Um, you know, just for things to look around. It's, uh, it's, uh, I'm really happy with the way the new website looks. So the guys at, uh, Presto sports who, uh, put this new design together, uh, really outdid themselves in this one. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. It's been a great week for me. Uh, well, I think this the stadium photos is a pleasant surprise. You know, I you you probably mentioned it to me at different times among the um, you talking about the stadium redesign. But the day the day it went live, uh, I really you know I had other work to do, and I was clicking through team pages, seeing who a who had them and who didn't, but also just looking at the stadiums. And I think there's a couple of different ways you know when we always thought about okay we're gonna put stadium pictures up well you have to have a standard from the 50 yard line looking at the stadium and there's a couple of different ways to to do it and that look really good some teams had aerial shots some teams take it sort of from an angle uh in the end zone where you can see the press box and you could see down the field Mm -hmm. um some teams take it on game day where the stadium's full like uh stevens point uh, did that and uh, uh, North Central is, is sort of a stadium shot and then uh, so there's a couple of different ways to do it that look really cool the aerial is great um, I, I think you know I take you know taken at night taken by day and then the, you know the weird thing too you, you know the teams that don't have facility and you click on their picture and you just see basically a soccer field with a football lines painted over it then you're like you know why it really stands out so if you do have a great stadium, you want to showcase it uh, with that picture. And it, it really just makes the, the page come alive. And, uh, you know, I know that's a real, um, you know, clicking through stadium photos is a real D3 nerdy thing to do. But <laughs> let's face it, if you're still with us this far into the podcast, you are a D3 nerd and you'll enjoy it. So don't forget, coming up the rest of the week, we have uh, Play of the Week nominations. They are due by 5 p.m. on Monday. Um, if somebody out there can beat the Gallaudet play, that's great. If not, we do honorable mentions and those honorable mention plays still get, uh, several hundred, uh, video views from our, uh, from our viewers. So, uh, they are still worth your, your time to, uh, to nominate, uh, team of the week. That is our weekly honor roll. Those individual nominations of individuals are due by 8 PM Eastern time on Mondays. Uh, Monday we'll also have the, uh, post game show. You can also find it at the, Bottom of this page uh, with the D3 reports, post-game highlights, post-game interviews. I have a whole package of stuff from the Mountain Union Heidelberg game. You know, we didn't use any coach audio in this particular podcast because we knew it was going to be long. Uh, But you can hear uh, what Vince Karras had to say. You can hear what Mike Hallett had to say. Um, You know, we... I talked with uh, I talked with BJ Mitchell as well, uh, the running back for Mountain Union. So there's a a couple of uh, uh, ways you can learn a little bit more about that game. Uh, and then there's of course, uh, highlights of games, coach interviews from other games. 
uh, all added to, to, uh, to a YouTube playlist that you can click through. Um, on Tuesday, we have the Around the Region columns stretching into Wednesday. I think uh, Keith will have a poll positions. We'll have regional rankings on Wednesday afternoon when the NCAA releases them and uh, all the other things that we have leading up to Triple Take on Friday and Week 10 action on Saturday. Saturday, November 9th, second to last Saturday of the 2013 Division Three football regular season. So... That's the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 4th. For Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman, and so long till next week.